welcome all of you to Uplift and to the conversation and the Anchor Point. Uh, my name is Kyle, and I'm so glad that you joined us. So this is the final message in our series, All Things New. I've said this, our God is really interested, invested, and invested in doing new things in your life. And I hope these three weeks have been a fresh word in your life that new things are coming to you. So we're going to start with a little bit of honesty right off the bat and maybe some horror, okay? Trust me on this. With what may be, I think, the most unsettling question we could really ever ask ourselves, it's this. How do we know that our lives, with all of our loves and ambitions and fears, have any meaning at all? Isn't that a scary question? It's a scary question. Most of us are believers here. We follow Jesus. I don't think we follow Jesus blindly. I hope we've given careful consideration to what it means for us to follow Jesus. At some point in our life, I think we've counted the costs of following Jesus, and we've determined that the price to pay for that is a price that we're willing to pay. But, but... Meaning and purpose, if we're going to be really honest, those things are still elusive. We're just going to kind of be real, some real talk for a minute. Because we want to matter. We want our lives and our actions and our experiences and our opinions, we want them to matter in real life situations. So that kind of question here, it really cuts us to the bone. So what we're going to do the next few minutes is we're going to talk about meaning and purpose, and we're going to talk about our pursuit of it. A couple years ago, the top-watched show on Netflix was the show called Squid Game. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Squid Game tells the story of a gambling addict who, because of his addiction and lack of financial stability, is lured into another game a gamble for even higher stakes with hundreds of other debt-ridden contestants for a prize of something like $40 million. Biggest show on Netflix. Now, the outcomes of this game, the protagonist discovers, are only two, only two outcomes. You either die or you don't. It's actually a little darker than that. You either kill or be killed. Now, these aren't great odds, but the amount of money along with the inescapable nihilism, pushes the contestants to risk their lives and their dignity for a shot at some unfathomable wealth. Now, of course, the final battle in Squid Game gives us a a clear glimpse into the want of meaning. The final battle features the last two survivors, one who killed his way there, and the other who actually tried to save people along the way, both learning in that moment something integral about themselves and why they matter. And they learned that throughout this game. I didn't watch this show, by the way. It was the biggest phenomenon on the Internet in the world and pop culture for a while. looked a little too violent for me, but I read as much as I could and found the synopsis. I just kind of want to put that disclaimer. I'm not recommending it. Let me just say that. But this show, because of its popularity, it kind of touched a nerve. Feel free to Google it a little bit later. Because it posed that question, this question to those who watched it. What's the point of life? 
is there really any meaning to life? That show forced people to ask that question. What's the worth of a human life? And for those final two contestants in that game, what does life really mean to them in that moment? All that they had to do to get there, what is it worth? Philosophers and thinkers have pondered over meaning and purpose for centuries and have readily adopted what's called the iceberg analogy to describe meaning. Now, here it is. You probably know this. The iceberg analogy is, in pretty simple terms, the idea that the aspects of life with which we interact are not the whole of meaning. Only what we see is the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Everything that supports what we see is, or what's visible, everything that supports that, it's buried and it's unseen in this dark ocean beneath. So philosophers have attempted to define and analyze what lies beneath. And it's unseen, thinking that this is truly where meaning is found. In other words, really, it's very simple. Why do you do what you do? So philosophers and thinkers have tried to discern the answer to that question, the the quest for meaning, the quest for purpose, not a surface question. It's a question that makes us dig for more answers, and sometimes those answers just aren't readily available. I spent a lot of years teaching in a public university, taught history at 8 o'clock in the morning, most exciting part of the day, right? Now, the first days of class every semester were days of soliciting information from my students, what we did. I would offer them a questionnaire full of inquiries of basic information, but the last question was about eight or nine questions. The last question was always this, why were you born? What is the core meaning of your life? What's your purpose? You know, they're answering questions about email addresses and phone numbers, and they get to that one. It's always a curveball. Now, in my classes, I had a, had a lot of folks who believed in Jesus, a lot, of, a lot of believers, and they would often say on that answer that their purpose was to glorify God. Now, good, good answer. Those were few, but they, they weren't uncommon. I also had some students who were parents in my classes, And they would generally say that the meaning of their lives is wrapped up in their desire to care for the children and their families. Those are good. And then there was, by far the most, who would answer the question this way. They wanted to do well, so this is what they would say. Their purpose in life was to make an A in my class. That was their purpose. The variety of answers, though, always indicated to me something, that this question, The question of meaning was elusive, and it was stubbornly unpleasant. No one really wants to ponder the reason they exist, or at least they didn't really want to ponder it at an 8 a.m. world civilization class. This question is so big that even King Solomon laments this question. He does this in Ecclesiastes. You know this, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. What he wrote, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, really poetic there, really poetic, but it's really a lament. Previously in this chapter, Solomon has explained the necessity of seasons in our lives. You know this, time to mourn, time to laugh, time to cry, time to live, time to die. He's done all this previous to this verse. 
But here, after he does all that, Solomon finally says that God has given us an overwhelming force of life that is really unexplainable. That's what he says here. In other words, God has timed our lives in an orderly and almost predictable fashion, but we still can't understand what that means, which pushes us to search for meaning. It's inevitable. That's what we do. We've done it today. Because we want to matter. We've already said that. And in going on this search, really, if we're going to be honest, some more real talk here, we're prone to adopt the newest reason for meaning, the freshest way we can determine the worth of our lives in whatever situation. We know, though, that our short attention spans and the quickness with which we discard useless identities shows us that we really aren't equipped to withstand the revolving door of options and of voices that are not truthful, that seduce us and tell us that we matter for the wrong reasons. And these options and these voices, you know what they do? They push us from Jesus. It's what they do. Who, as Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one in whom we find meaning. But these options, they push us from that. So much so that in the New Testament, in Colossians, Paul has to warn us to stay away from anything other than Jesus in our search for meaning and purpose. This is from Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It's actually at the top of your order of worship. Paul warns us well in this statement. See to it, he wrote, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. That's a stark warning, but it tells us three urgent, important things, warnings about looking for meaning outside of Jesus. And here they are. Here's the first thing. False meaning can actually take us captive. It can take us captive. It's an interesting word. Paul could have used any word. Smart guy. Command of language and sentences. But he chose a word here from the world of military language. Soldiers would take captive treasure from conquered places, or soldiers would take captive conquered people from conquered places. It's a forceful word. Just a little bit of wiggle room. And Paul knew something here. He knew that those who believed and found meaning in anything other than Jesus have the power to steal you from Jesus. What he says, Paul knew that we easily become captivated with the newest way to think about how our lives matter. And we need to know the intoxicating power of those lives. In fact, in one of his final letters in Galatians chapter 1, Paul actually said that such a false message, he called it there another gospel, could come from a messenger who may be as captivating and as beautiful as an angel. The battle lines are clear right here. They're clear. And the war is real, and our very souls are the prize. It's worth stealing. Your soul is worth stealing. We need to know that false pursuits 
can take us captive. Here's the second thing we learn about false meaning from this warning. That these false meanings, they, he calls them hollow and deceptive philosophy from human tradition. That's what he calls them. Empty. Anything other than Jesus is empty. Hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand Paul here. He uses the word philosophy, uses the word, and it's a, it's a word that implies a love of knowledge, and he uses that word with some adjectives. Listen, there's nothing wrong with learning. There's nothing wrong with learning. There's nothing wrong with gaining knowledge until that knowledge tries to empty the cross of its power. That message, that philosophy, that kind of knowledge, it's empty and hollow. And it has roots in the emergence of humanity. In other words, it's been around as long as humans have been around. It's based, Paul says this, on human tradition. Let me show you this. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn. There's a lot there. We're going to read a little bit. It's going to be on the screen, but you might want to see all of it. We're going to go back to the beginning. And here's the context of what's going on in Genesis chapter 4. We learn pretty quickly that the first God-breathed human family is an absolute mess. It's a family of complete dysfunction and murder. Adam and Eve have two baby boys. They named them Cain and Abel. And Cain murdered Abel. The oldest kills his, youngest, his younger brother. So Cain, the firstborn child of this new humanity, is also the first murderer in the human race. That's a mess. You think your family has problems. So as his punishment, Cain leaves the presence of the Lord. And he goes to what is called the land of Nod. And there, Scripture says, he builds a city, finds a wife, and together they have their own son. And this narrative continues. You can read it all right there. Until it gets to one of his great-great-grandsons, a guy named Lamech. And it tells us about Lamech and Lamech's two wives, Adah and Zillah. Now we're going to pick up right there in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. Adah gave birth to Jabal. Jabal was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Verse 22, Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Now, these three verses filled with a lot of information. They communicate to us here that culture flourished. It actually flourished. The children of Lamech and Adah and Lamech and Zillah became the ancestors of human culture. What's going on here? Lamech's son, Jabal, he was the founder of husbandry. I've got a screen for this. He raised livestock. Lamech's son, Jubal, is the ancestor of music. And Lamech's son, Tubal Cain, is the ancestor of metallurgy. He's a metal worker. So even though Cain was disobedient, he was a murderer, God's hands, uh, hand of grace was still on him and on his descendants. Through him, and subsequently through his ancestors, some of the world's most significant discoveries were born. That's what we're hearing. But... But let's keep reading. The very next verse, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. 
I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Man, what a mood change here in Genesis chapter 4. The flourishing of Cain's lineage, of culture, of humanity, right here comes to a screeching halt when we learn that Cain's murderous tendencies were also passed to his grandson, Lamech. Culture flourished. Yes, it grew. But so did sin. The good life didn't curve the growth of sin here. And really, Lamech sounds like a bad, bad dude. That's what he sounds like. These two verses actually have a name. They're called Lamech's Song. And what they do is they reveal to us Lamech's character. His wives may have taken great pride in the accomplishments of their sons, but they would have looked with horror at Lamech's bloodlust. Lamech claims here that he killed a young man, a seemingly inferior person, just because that young man injured him. And then he says he would gladly do the same to anyone who wrongs me. Do it again. Lamech was a man of vengeance. So while we found here in Genesis 4 the rather hopeful origins of culture, we've also found the origins of false meaning, the origins of hollow and deceptive philosophy right here from human Tradition. That tradition began here. And you know what this is? You know what this hollow and deceptive philosophy is? It's real simple. It's self-sufficiency. Anything outside of Jesus is going to tempt you and try to convince you that you can do it on your own, that you are your own God. That's what this is. This is the legacy of Lamech, and it's the one about which Paul warns. Again, this is the human tradition. It's hollow and deceptive, and above all, it's dangerous. Because as the narrative of Genesis continues, it's Cain's lineage who were destroyed in the flood just two chapters later. It's hollow and deceptive. Here's the third thing from this morning. False meaning, the pursuit of false meaning, it's not from Christ. It's not from Christ. But really, how do you know? How do you know that what you thought to be new is just old? How do you know it's not from Christ? You know it when it seeks to overthrow the sovereignty and supremacy of Jesus. If any new reason for purpose and meaning supplants Jesus in your life, if anything else other than Jesus is to what you attribute your very reason to breathe, if anything other than Jesus quickens your heart, and causes you to get out of bed in the morning, it's not as new as you think it is. It's born from the first murderer. It's a system that makes you work hard or harder for favor. Because if it in any way says that you've got to earn your place, that you must work harder and pray harder to be loved, then it's heresy, even if Jesus' name is attached. That's what it is. In fact, Paul begins this warning really with a big, literal eye-opener. He says this, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it. In other words, keep your eyes open. Keep your head in the game. This is serious. In fact, if Paul was here now, and if you were to ask him to further define these sorts of teachings, he'd probably say things like this. Politics do not give your life meaning. Tech 
Technology doesn't give your life meaning. Grandkids don't. Kids don't. Families don't. Your career doesn't. Neither does your 401k. These things are all good. They give you happiness, but your identity is in Christ, and it's in Christ alone. The meaning for your life is loving Christ. It's following Christ. And anything that says otherwise is empty. It's hollow. But how do we keep our eyes open? How do we see to it? Right? How do we keep our head in the game? Well, Paul speaks to that. Just a few verses earlier. Let's read this. It's from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. All kinds of goodness here. All kinds of goodness. But really, It doesn't require any advanced theology to understand this. There's no secret algorithm, no formula. There's no great daily grind. What we find here instead is that this this idea of keeping our eyes open, it's found in the rhythm of our partnership with God. That's really what this is. And though there are several things here, Paul actually reveals this partnership to us in just two ways. Now, all kinds of goodness, but really this, we can break it down in two ways. First, it's our part of this partnership. And it's this, receive Christ. That's the first. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Accept His authenticity as compared to that which is hollow and deceptive. And listen, receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, rather than receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. Subtle difference, but it's big. Because receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord, is to say there is no other. But receiving Jesus as Lord opens the door to other possibilities that aren't real, other pursuits. That's our part of the partnership. And in this rhythm of our partnership, here's God's part, and it's found in one word, and it's in the word in this passage, the word rooted, as in continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up. Now, I got to make a confession. This little word, this word rooted, to me, I get emotional thinking about it. It's one of the most beautiful and precious words in all of Scripture, to me. It's the truth in the lives to me. It's the light in the darkness that surrounds me. And I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be real. My TED Talk here. It's this word that I think of more than any other word in Scripture. For real, 100%. Here's one. Here's one. It all has to do with grammar and language. That matters. First, because Paul wrote the word rooted in the passive voice. Let me tell you what that means. That means that being rooted is not something we do. I can't do that. You cannot root yourself. It is something that's done to us. We can't do it. It doesn't matter what you've been taught and what you think, you can't do it. Paul knew this. That's why he wrote the word that way. It's done to us. God roots us. 
That's how it happens. Now listen, hollow and deceptive philosophies based on human traditions, those things say you can do it. It's the lie of self-sufficiency, Song of Lamech. But here's the second reason why this word is the most precious word to me in all of Scripture. And it's because Paul also wrote this word in the perfect tense. Here's what that means. It means that your rootedness can never change. That's what it means. God rooted you, and that's it. You were rooted in Jesus yesterday. You're rooted in Jesus today. And you will be rooted in Jesus tomorrow. This whole thing is God's show. And he did it all for you. And it's amazing how much assurance And truthfulness is found in that one little word. This is all a statement of fact. This is what this means. It means that the gospel freshness, its newness that you once experienced when you received Jesus, can and will be new every single day. It will be as new tomorrow as the first day you received it. The prophet Jeremiah knew this. And in the middle of desolation and heartbreak, he wrote these words, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen and amen.